Picture this. It's the middle of the night. You're on a beach. The men who own you are pointing guns at you, unafraid to use them if you step out of line. For months, you've toiled without pay for these men, housed in a room without space to lie down. You came to this place because you were promised a good job, enough to send money back home to your family. But now you barely have enough to eat, surviving on a roll of bread a day. One of your tasks is to push terrified people into the Mediterranean. People like you who are attempting this deadly journey as a reward for the months of unpaid labour they have undertaken. Others have paid outright to make the journey, but do so in the belief that they'll be taking a comfortable boat with enough space, food and water to reach Europe. Paying customer or not, people are crammed onto these flimsy rubber boats 140 at a time in a space big enough for just 30. As you're pushing these people out to sea, your captors turn their backs for a moment and you take the opportunity to jump into the boat that you've helped to leave the shore. You know that you can't swim, but the prospect of drowning is better than continuing the life you're currently living. This is what happened to a man called Nicky I met on board Aquarius. If you, if you wanted to go home, why, why, why you did can you... go home. When you get into Libya, you can go home. Ask anybody here. Really? You can go home. Why is that? kill you. Was there any medical care? Do you know for the guys? No medical care. That's why people dying every day. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders. A month ago, I was called away to work on Aquarius, a search and rescue ship we operate in the Mediterranean alongside SOS Mediterranean an organisation that specialises in search and rescue operations. A few days before I returned to the UK, Aquarius rescued 560 people from four precarious rubber boats on the Med. Every one of those 560 people had a story similar to Nicky's, every one of them hoping for a better life. This episode was recorded on board Aquarius and features Connor Kenny, who was involved in that rescue. Connor is an MSF doctor from Ireland who appeared in the last series of Everyday Emergency, where he talked about his first MSF assignment in Greece. Well, welcome to the podcast, Connor. It's great to actually be doing this sort of in person. Um, yeah, thanks very much for having me. This rescue, which took place on the 18th of May, was Connor's last after spending three months at sea. It's very hard now to walk away from this, Nick. Um, this problem is clearly getting worse. I mean, you know the figures are up. I think it's on 42% on last year, which is absolutely staggering. And, um, I mean, they show no signs of abating. Connor's referring to the figure of a 42% increase in deaths on the Mediterranean in 2017, compared to the first months of last year. But it's worth bearing in mind that the number of people crossing has also increased. If you look at the reasons why these people are travelling as well, Nick, it's, it's pretty clear, you know, the, the stories that are coming out of Libya um, are, are, are obviously are horrific. We realise why these people are escaping. The point is that they'll continue to, to leave. Um, this is not something that will stop anytime soon, and um, clearly a solution needs to be found. Rescue missions on the Mediterranean exist in a world of two extremes. Drawn out periods of waiting and searching that can last for days or weeks are followed by intense frenetic rescues. After the final person is taken on board, the rescue ship then becomes a hive of non-stop activity for 36 hours as the rescued are taken to a port of safety. 
In the search and rescue zone, a vast area of the central Mediterranean that begins 12 nautical miles north of the Libyan coast in international waters, the SOS Mediterranean team are on watch 24 hours a day. During those long periods of waiting, I would learn a lot about the sea, the wind and the conditions needed for a rescue. The rubber boats are launched from the Libyan coast at night, when the smugglers are less likely to be caught. The winds have to be blowing from the south to help the overloaded vessels get out to sea. When we reached the search and rescue zone, early on the morning of Sunday the 14th of May, the conditions weren't good. We had to wait, and while we were waiting, Connor would reflect on his time on the ship. One evening, he told me the story of three boys he'd met during a recent rescue. There's one particular uh, group of boys from Darfur region of Sudan who actually, when they were kids, were brought to uh, MSF feeding centre uh, in, in that particular region. They tell a, an incredible story of their time from uh, the Darfur region through Libya and up to Tripoli. And upon on that journey, they basically had their lives taken from them uh, at the age of 16 years old. They were bought and sold in what they, uh, they say were their slave markets and forced to work in on farms or they had money extorted from them um, being, after being kidnapped. And one day when um, they managed to free themselves from this one particular owner, one of the boys actually got shot. And that was only a couple of days before he ended up here on the Aquarius. What was incredible was that as he got shot leaving this house, his friends escaped. However, they then went back to the centre of Tripoli and met with a number of others from their community and got enough money together to buy this boy's freedom and then buy all the freedom of all the boys who escaped um, onto the rubber boats that evening and so they were sent off uh, into the Mediterranean where we managed to uh, pick them up in a very distressed state. They looked after each other on the boat after, the, after they were seen here in the clinic with one of the boys who had who had been shot in the leg. We had a special area on the boat for him to stay in. However, his friends were insistent that the boy sit, um, stays with them, who they could then warm up and get him food and bring him to the toilet. Um, all of their own volition, despite the fact that we had offered, but they were just such a tight band of brothers who'd only met uh, about six months ago in Libya. But the way they had stuck together was absolutely incredible. And... I wonder uh, what will become of those boys in the future. It was just the most remarkable sights that I'd ever seen and uh, it was absolutely beautiful and um, it gives you a real reminder about, you know, humanity and uh, um, it's something I'll never forget. I never met the boys that Connor talks about, but the story is a familiar one. Each person on the ship has endured some kind of horror in the months leading up to the night that they're pushed out to sea. It's hard not to think about this during the quieter moments on board, but those quiet moments are few and far between. Between rescues, the Aquarius team is constantly training to make sure everyone is prepared for every eventuality. So, on one, two, roll, right? My count. It helps the team to bond and definitely beats sitting around doing nothing. The SOS team run drills, constantly perfecting their response time to getting the ribs, or rigid hulled inflatable boats, off the ship and into the water. The rest of the time is spent packing rescue kits, packages we hand out to the people rescued, 
filled with a change of clothes, soap, high-protein food and a blanket to keep warm. And the medical team takes stock of the drugs and equipment on board. We try and get as much sleep as possible. On the morning of Thursday the 18th of May, after five days at sea, we're woken abruptly at 6am and it's all hands on deck. With women on board, one pregnant woman, one young child, no water inside, no unconscious people. Over. Okay. And of the... Alice, Alice from Marcella. Yeah. Ian, the new one. Second. You guys made contact and delivered them. Just come out to the main deck. Okay, so it's just gone seven o'clock in the morning. Um, we are in the middle of a rescue. There are four uh, rubber dinghies with around 100, 120 people uh, out in the sea. Um, our ribs have been deployed. Um, they are just about to set off to go and um, make contact with the first boat. We've got life jackets set up and uh, rescue kits on deck for 160 people. After four days of strong winds across the Mediterranean, the weather had improved, allowing a flotilla of boats to depart the Libyan shore the previous night. For the next seven to nine hours, the rubber boats had been at sea, until they were eventually spotted and Aquarius was instructed by the Maritime Rescue Coordination Centre in Rome to assist. Here's Marcella Cray, MSF's project coordinator on Aquarius, explaining how we arrived on the scene. So it was originally one of the planes that was flying over uh, doing spotting that sighted uh, about four rubber boats. And then MRCC called us and asked us to go to this location and that's what we've done. Uh, the, the MOAS boat, Phoenix, uh, has al is also around and they're on standby right now, uh, waiting for further instructions whether they're going to assist us or go to one of their own uh, rubber boats. Yeah. At the start of a rescue, the SOS Mediterranean team send up two ribs, loaded with enough life jackets for everyone on the rubber boat. This is a critical moment of the rescue and it's planned out meticulously. The boat that makes the first approach has MSF's cultural mediator on board. In this case, it's Reem Rouge, who speaks French, Arabic and English. She announces to everyone on board in three languages to stay calm and that everyone is going to be rescued. As she explains this, the rib circles the rubber boat slowly to avoid people rushing to one side and capsizing the boat. So Reem, our cultural mediator, has just been um, giving instructions to people to tell them to be calm, they're, they're going to be taken back to uh, the Aquarius. She tells everyone to be calm and to remain seated and that women, children and vulnerable people will be taken back to Aquarius first without exception. You know, I've seen pictures of this this crisis for the last two or three years now, um, and yeah, it finally sort of hits you hard when you see it for real for the first time. You know, pulling up alongside a boat of 120 people—it's just just crazy. Nine-month-old babies packed into the centre of this crushed crammed life rubber boat you've got to be in a really really awful situation to think yeah I'm gonna put my nine-month-old child onto this rubber boat because that's the best option to me at the moment the space for between 17 to 19 people on the rib so a rubber boat of 120 to 140 can take up to nine trips to be safely evacuated 
On the second rib is the MSF doctor who makes an assessment, as Connor explains. My job as a medic is to try and identify those who are most unwell on the boat so we can prioritise them to come on our uh, rescue boat and bring them back to the Aquarius quickly. But Nick, I mean, that's a, that's a really difficult job because these, mm, these vessels are completely overfilled with people. The most sick people are going to be lying on the ground and they're the people I cannot see. We try everything we can to, to make better decisions in terms of prioritisation, but time is not necessarily on your side. And in terms of prioritising cases, you really need to just work with the information that you have. Thankfully, the seas are calm and everyone on the first boat we rescue is in relatively good health. Uh, we're really well. Uh, so the situation this morning was we told uh, we spotted a uh, rowboat. This is Nick from SOS Mediterranean's search and rescue team describing the rescue. Uh, proceeded about half an hour uh, to get into place, launched both boats. Uh, the condition of the rowboat was good, people were calm. Uh, we took a woman and her baby off first and then uh, handed out life jackets. Once everyone had life jackets on, we started the evacuation. Uh, everyone stayed calm. It was a very good rescue, got everyone off. Uh, and now we're proceeding to uh, two other targets. As people come on board Aquarius, their life jackets are taken off and they're assessed by our nurse. In this case, Stefan Burke. He'll do a very quick assessment and make sure anyone suffering from fuel burns is taken for a shower straight away. Often fuel leaks into the rubber boat and people crammed in the middle have no way of avoiding it. People are then handed their rescue kit and our humanitarian affairs officer registers their details. Their age, nationality, and if they're under 18, establish whether they're traveling alone. Here's Marcella again with the final tally. So we have on the first rubber boat, 140 individuals, among them 33 women, mostly traveling alone. One child, uh, about four, like under four years old. Among the women, four are pregnant. And among the whole group, we had uh, four injured people and 11 unaccompanied minors. Within minutes of getting the last people from the first rubber boat on board, we're instructed by the MRCC to head to another boat in distress, approximately 45 minutes away. When we arrive on the scene, I managed to get on board the larger rib with Connor to head out for the assessment. Sorry for the quality of the audio coming up. I'm stood by the engine of the rib, which is too loud for my microphone to handle in places. Okay, so I'm on the rib now. Um, we are approaching a rubber boat. Um, rib, rib one, the team that do initial assessment, are approaching. Um, they're going to be looking for any vulnerable cases, so uh, they're going to be counting how many women and children there are, um, uh, whether there are any people in need of medical care. Um, so on the on the rib that I'm on at the moment, we have Dr. Connor Kenny with me as well. So Max at the head of the boat at the moment, he's the uh, Deputy Search and Rescue Coordinator for SOS Mediterranean. He's just explaining to the people on the rubber boat what's going to happen, that we're going we're gonna to be distributing life jackets. Uh, everyone has to stay calm and, uh, and then we'll, um, one by one, transport people back to the Aquarius. We're going to get the women off the bow section and then we're going to start, I will start life jacket distribution. Stefan, Stefan, for Connor. Here's Connor radioing back to the ship for Stefan, our nurse and medical focal point, to provide the first assessment and let the team on Aquarius know what to expect. Connor for Stefan. 
informing Alice, our midwife, that two women and one child would be coming on the next rib. Thank you guys, you're doing very well. Over the course of the next few hours, we rescue two more boats in distress, bringing on board a total of 560 people. Most of the people on board are from Nigeria, Mali, Sudan and Bangladesh. 91, just under a sixth of people, are unaccompanied minors between the ages of 13 and 17 taking this perilous journey alone. As the day winds down, I managed to find a few minutes to myself to reflect on what had happened since the moment we got the call that we were heading for those boats in distress. So it's um, it's about half past 11 now. Um, the day is finally drawing to an end. Um, but yeah, my God, what a crazy day. Uh, yeah. Just, just incredible. I mean, in the first instance, just the determination of the teams on this ship is just unbelievable. Um, you know, we started at seven in the morning, and by nine at night, people were still going. Craig and Connor, um, Stefan and Tim and Alice, and the medics were still hard at work in the clinics and in the women's shelter patching up wounds and attending to mums and their babies and then Sean the logistician was still out doing crowd control and making sure that people were in the right places and that the toilets were working and and then there's the the mighty Marcella who's um, our project coordinator making sure that this thing runs like a well-oiled machine um, and then you've got the amazing SOS team that, you know, despite their job being over, once everyone's safely on board, um, you know, they're still helping out and making sure that, yeah, everything's running as smooth as possible and everyone's fed and clothed and warm and looked after. It's, it's uh, an incredible thing to witness. But when you look at what these people have fled. They've traveled across the Sahara to get here in pickup trucks speeding at 70 miles an hour for days on end. And then they finally hit Libya and they're thrown into detention centers. Many of the women are raped. Um, The levels of sexual violence are just unbelievable. People are forced into forced labor. Um, people are regularly tortured, beaten, abused, completely undernourished. You're going to want to leave that situation in any means necessary, any way possible. And so yeah, if you're a mother with a nine month old, 
maybe in that situation the best option open to you is to just get on a rubber life get on a rubber boat with 120 other people and just hope for the best it's easy to get caught up in the emotion of the situation when you're aboard a search and rescue ship but looking back gives me some perspective it was a controversial decision for msf to begin its search and rescue operations back in 2015 Many people, including people in MSF, questioned whether it was within our remit. But at the time, EU search and rescue operations had been severely cut back and the gap needed to be filled. More than 3,700 people died trying to cross the Mediterranean in 2015, and more than 1,700 people have perished so far this year. On the ship, I spoke to people who had been duped into travelling to Libya for work. These are people that you would typically describe as economic migrants. People who have left countries like Bangladesh to go to a place where, it was thought, there was work to be had. To my mind, if you're fleeing a place like Libya, you're no longer an economic migrant. People move for lots of different reasons. Some need more urgent protection, but all deserve to be treated with basic human dignity. Just as those boys from Darfur, whose story Connor told earlier, helped each other. Frankly, the majority of these people are not risking their lives on such a deadly journey because they want free schools and medical care. It's because their lives are so unimaginably difficult and dangerous, they truly feel it's their only option. And MSF needs to be there to offer expert medical care. The morning after the rescue, we woke early to make tea and hand out bread for our 560 guests. And let me tell you, making tea for that number of people isn't as simple as it sounds. After a good night's sleep, the first for most people in months, everyone awoke relaxed, with fresher faces than the day before. The women and children left the shelter to find their husbands and fathers. Conversations spread across the deck and the first laughs began to be heard. Later in the day, about 24 hours before people would disembark the ship in Italy, Reem, our cultural mediator, began to make her rounds. Okay, so, Arabi? Arabi. Francewi? Okay, English? Okay, we have everything here. <laughs> in three languages and with a map in hand, Reem started to explain to everyone on board what awaited them. So, my friend, you left Libya, you remember? Yeah. So this is Libya. And this is from where you left. And we are crossing the sea, crossing, crossing, crossing. And tomorrow we'll be in Vibu Valencia. It's in Italy, okay? okay. So this is Sicilia. Smiles slowly spread across each and every face as Reem explained to the thronging crowd how this part of their journey would end. While we did tell people as we rescued them on the ribs that Libya was over, that we were going to Europe, the trauma of the moment, being inches away from the sea, seemed to cause a momentary lapse of memory. Now they knew for sure, Libya was behind them, the safety of Europe awaited them instead. There are many, many happy memories. I mean, it's always the night before disembarkation. So, it's the elation phase, after people have had their rest and they realise that they are going to safety, that they start singing. It's always, it's incredible, it's, a, it's the same time every, every time. And, the, and they start singing uh, on the back of the boat. And it was the same this time. After Reem's talk, the crowd settled back down with their friends and families. The sun began to set. 
Like clockwork, gentle hums and low tappings on drums could be heard across the ship. And before long, the music erupted entirely, enveloping the ship for hours. You can imagine the fusion of cultures that, that we have. So maybe East Africans, West Africans, North Africans, uh, Southeast Asian people, all coming together, all singing, all dancing. They're various fusions of culture and, and music. And it's the most incredible sight to see how they work with each other in generating this atmosphere. And to sit down and watch that is the most incredible sight. And for me, that is what it's all about. The, the people working together and um, I, I don't know, sharing a common humanity, I guess. It's, it's the most beautiful thing you'll ever, you'll ever see. And that is without doubt the biggest thing that I'm going to miss uh, here on the boat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Emergency. This episode was produced by me, Nick Owen, as well as our editor, Fabio Bassoni, and our intern, Jesse Gutch. While I was on the ship, I also captured some photos of the scenes on board. To take a look, go to our episode page at msf.org.uk med. That's msf.org.uk med. As always, it's your feedback, likes and shares that help spread the word about MSF and the people we help. Feel free to ask me a question in the comments section of msf.org.uk slash med or leave a comment on iTunes. Next time on Everyday Emergency. When you're responsible for everybody else, you have to show that you're calm to an extent and you have to deal with it. When you're responsible for people, you are the person who's then usually getting the information if there is any. Of course, it's not, not scary. You get an adrenaline rush for sure. MSF project coordinator Emily Gilbert has spent her entire working life in the midst of conflict. From the Middle East to the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's Emily's job to negotiate with armed actors, ensuring the safety of our team so they can provide much needed care. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.